Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Well, welcome everyone to Liberating Arts uh, Liberation Channel. I'm Jonathan Tran. I'm one of the persons working on this channel. I have the great pleasure of interviewing for our conversation, Professor Willie James Jennings of Yale University, the Divinity School there, as well as Africana Studies. Uh, it's great to have you, Professor Jennings. Welcome. Thank you for being with us. Oh, glad to be here with you, Jonathan. Glad to be here. So uh, you're a man who doesn't require much introduction, but I'm just going to do a brief one. Um, you, of course, are the author of The Christian Imagination, Theolo Theology and the Origins of Race, which won, I think, just about every award that could be won uh, in theology and religion. But I think, more importantly, most of us consider one of the most important books of the last 25 years, and it really has been a sea change in the conversation. So we're really grateful for that. You follow that up by... Uh, a commentary on the Book of Acts, uh, where you continued a number of these themes and arguments, and then your most recent book, which we'll be talking about today, After Whiteness, and Education and Belonging. So uh, great, uh, grateful again for having you with us, and uh, I thought we'd just jump right into it. So you began by talking about this book by saying this is, you know, you had thought about when you want to write a book like this, but you had decided that this is the right time. So could you say kind of, um, what times you think we're in, um, give us a picture of how you're imagining our world today, and also what you hope this book uh, contributes to that. What, how does it speak into our world today? Yeah, glad to. And again, thank you for inviting me. So this, this uh, book comes at a time when um, there are so many deep questions about what theological education is. Questions about whether, whether it will survive, and questions about how it should survive, um, and even questions about whether it should survive. <laughs> but there are certainly questions about how it will survive. And so the book comes at a time when so many um, schools are thinking about what they're doing, and so many schools are in peril, Jonathan. Um, years ago, the former uh, director of the ATS, the Association of Theological Schools, which for your listeners is the governing body for of theological education in North America and Canada and in, and in a few other parts of the world. Um, uh, Dan Elshire was the director back then and he started saying many years ago that um, about a third of the theological schools in North America will probably will not survive deep into the next century, into this mm -hmm. century. And it still is the case that uh, many schools are um, hanging on by a thread and many have already closed. And so um, part of the question is, um, how do we think about the whole endeavor of theological education when um, uh, schools are in trouble? And the reason schools are in trouble is because the church in Christianity in North America is in trouble, just in terms of the sheer numbers of people who still find 
uh, going to church and being part of organized Christian religion uh, a compelling idea. And so you have that dynamic. You also have the dynamic of when I say Christianity is in a very serious crisis in North America. It's for so long, it's been connected to a whiteness and white supremacy and um, deeply racist habits of mind and habits of body. And that is creating a crisis, especially for younger generations, the kind of students you're teaching and I'm teaching, who are looking at the faith of their parents and their grandparents and thinking, eh, I don't know if I want to follow that stuff. And so there's a crisis at that level. But then, you know, the book also um, is written to speak to a wider crisis in Western education itself. And Western education itself is in crisis along some of the same lines that I've mentioned in terms of theological education, but also in terms of the, the, the ends and the purposes of education and the ways in which it's been tied so profoundly, so tightly to capitalist longings for so many people. And so, um, you know, as long as it has that as its telos, um, the reasons uh, why one would invest years of life and one's treasures in uh, education, it's, that, it's becoming dubious. Um, if, if the whole purpose is simply to make money on the other end, then um, there are many ways, as we know, that money can be made now. And uh, of course, those of us who are on the humanities side of the educational endeavor, we, we feel the crisis because increasingly uh, we are being seen as the, um, the historic district <laughs> of higher ed and higher ed is primarily being, um, you know, taken over, imagined as it were, from the reality of STEM. And so um, the, those of us who do humanities are having to argue for uh, our value, value added as it were, to the whole endeavor of education. So um, I, I, I wrote the book trying to speak to those things, but also as somebody who's been involved in teacher professor formation for many, many decades now, um, watching the deep melancholy that uh, surrounds so many people who um, decide they want to enter into this field and uh, the kind of pain and the kind of suffering that often goes unspoken in the process of being formed to be a scholar and then in the process of trying to live one's life as a scholar, especially for people of color. Um, you know, the, the story still has not been told about the, the trail of tears and the suffering of so many who, um, you know, went through hell <laughs> to get their PhDs and go through hell in order to stand in front of students and teach and to do something called scholarship. So, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to speak inside and speak to all of those, all of those problems and all of those uh, possibilities. And when you talk about the crisis, these various crises, how, how aware do you think people are? Um, they feel it, they're wrestling and struggling through it. How aware are the various crises at this point in the academy, do you think? I think it's, people, know, people are aware of it in pockets. Uh, where, where most people sense something is around the financial question, around the viability of um, education 
at all levels, in all contexts. The, the cost of it, the, uh, the value of it once you have done that, and then the, the, the pain that's involved with trying to negotiate the debt. And so people are aware of it at that level. But for many people, that's, that's all it really is. It really is a question about how do we have a more cost efficient product <laughs> to give to students and how do we get more people into college who can afford it. And after that conversation, then most people are like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty much finished with the conversation. But these other levels, I think very few people uh, certainly very few people outside the academy and I think not enough people in the academy are aware of this because for many people the, the, what I'm talking about really isn't a crisis you know it um, it's a part it's just a part of the a reality of being in the academy you just have to suck it up and accept it hmm. uh, COVID-19 pandemic this all exacerbates conditions. Are there places uh, in terms of what's happened this summer uh, with mass protests across the country, tons of um, very publicized forms of racism and violence and death. Uh, are there places of hope in the midst of pandemic or will pandemic just make all this worse, do you think? Well, it is making it worse, but there is hope too, Jonathan. I mean, what's so great about this moment, I mean, I can take my institution, there's, there's new focus, new energy, and new efforts being uh, placed on thinking through white supremacy, racism, and the problems of race, and how they impact every aspect of a uh, academic ecology. And I see this happening across the country. A lot of schools are starting to come back to these conversations. And so I'm encouraged by that. You know, be, having been in at this for many decades, I am a little worried. I'm not cynical, but I'm a little worried because I know that um, there's always uh, backlash and pushback and people getting fairly fatigued very quickly. <laughs> Once you start to ask them to start to think seriously about the racial condition. But let me tell you, this is the first time, this is the first time in this country where we have seen so many uh, white folks actually getting serious about learning and thinking about this. I was talking to a president of a seminary and he told me about it. he had a dear friend who over this the last few 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 weeks a couple of months had read like 16 books on race <laughs> and he was a little worried that his friend was going to get burned out but you know that's unprecedented man i mean i've been at this a long time and so have you and and anybody who's going to sit down and read 16 books about race i mean that something must be going on <laughs> Because in the old days, the most I could get somebody to read is maybe a, a half a half a book or two, you know, two essays. But so it's it's encouraging to see more people um, actually take this seriously. And and I agree with those who said, you know, the the pandemic. One of the things about the pandemic is that it has certainly created the conditions for more empathy, as uh, more people find themselves in situations analogous to what black folks in this country live with every day. You know, you, you, you want a job, but there, you can't have a job. Or if you take a job, you're gonna have to put your life at risk. You are, um, your, your healthcare is not what it should be. Um, you, 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 your, your city officials, your state officials seem to turn a deaf ear to your needs. So th these are things that I think that are helping people understand. And then to watch, to see the police uh, 
enact violence on black bodies with little, little, little imp with impunity and with little concern of being um, arrested for what they're doing. This is, this is hitting a lot of people. And I'm thankful that more people are actually seeing this. I'm, I'm not thankful that it's happening, obviously, but I'm very thankful that people are seeing it. Speaking of uh, books on race, uh, I'm sure your readers would want to know, how do you think about this book in relationship to your previous uh, books and your kind of ongoing work and interventions? Well, this is, um, this certainly is, in, uh, is uh, inside the um, larger project I have of thinking through the relationship of, of Christian faith, Christianity to race, and thinking about the uh, wider problems of the racial condition in the West. What's, what's um, unique about this book is that I'm bringing the reader inside, deeply inside, some of the um, realities of um, the academy that are often, that we, those of us who inhabit it, we know, but those who are outside the academy, whether it's the Theological Academy or just um, the, the wider Western Academy, uh, aren't really privy to the, the kinds of things that go on. And so, um, and, I, and I do this from the perspective of someone who's been, as you know, deep inside the operations of a school in a major university. And so having watched the way this works, as they say, watch the sausage getting made, <laughs> I, can, I can speak about, you know, some of these horrors. And my goal here and with this book is to um, actually create a different conversation than, than we're having right now. I mean, the way I position this book, this book, um, does a different work than the important work of Tennessee Coates or um, or your brother who's written uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, you know, or even Robin DiAngelo's fine book. Um, it does a different work than those folks because while the, all those works are very helpful and important, there's no book that really brings you inside the the formation of the Western intellectual who's going to inhabit the academy and some of the problems of whiteness inside that habitation. And so my hope is to, um, you know, put it's the kind of book that I want entire communities to read and talk about, because uh, anybody who looks at the book, you know, what you'll realize is that some of the perspective comes from a, a person who's a faculty. Some of the perspective comes from a person who's an administrator. <laughs> Some of the perspective comes from a student. And so what I want is to put all those groups together and together they can actually see some things that just one of those groups by themselves will often miss. And so it's, um, it's building on um, the project, but it's, um, it's taking on now uh, what I consider to be an urgent need in um, the work we're doing in the academy from the formation of undergraduates all the way to the care and feeding of senior faculty. I did want to go back specifically to the stories and the form of the book. Um, as you kind of have just said, one of the things that was really striking is the book is kind of characteristically full, really powerful arguments, um, brilliant formulations. But the form of the book is oftentimes stories and in particular poetry along with that. Why was that important for you to use those kinds of elements in kind of making your argument, showing what you want to show in the book? Yeah, there are, there are some matters that I think you can't get at with a straight analytic. 
um, and uh, to try to describe and think inside the dynamics of an academic ecology, you, you have to come at it uh, in, a, in a different way. And because what you're trying to do, and for my, what I was trying to do was to, in, in some ways, look at the academic ecology from the inside of the lives of professors and inside the lives of, of students and administrators, all those who inhabit the space. And um, part of this is you know, one of the things I talk about in the third chapter that uh, institutional thinking and institutional feeling go together. And in order to get to really kind of touch that, I wanted to um, find, a, find a way to, uh, to get at it. So I needed poetry and I needed um, short story. But what's also the case is that um, I, I think theology as a discipline needs those other mediums as a way to do its work. Unfortunately, uh, too much theology, I think, is just absolutely married to the analytic mode <laughs> in, in a way that I think oftentimes, um, uh, it, it, and to me, it really hurts you know, what, what we're trying to say. Uh, so much of, of uh, you know, not, not all of it, but I'll say a good portion of theology written you know, these days, and by these days, I mean the last 20, 25 years, it would it would be much better if it was written in a different in a different kind of mode than what than what we get. So I was trying to draw on all of that. Um, I also wanted to. I have been a I have been a closet poet for many years, and so what I wanted to do was to put my poetry out there as a part of it. But I also think uh, the po the poetic is an incredibly important uh, way to do theological work. It's an incredibly important way to um, open up, you know, the, as I like to say, the mysteries of the human in, inside the mysteries of God. And so it's important, I think, uh, as, a, as a, form of, a form of intellectual work to uh, embrace poetry. That's, I think, an essential part of how theologians and ethicists should do their work. So all of that was necessary because some of the things some of the things you cannot simply, um, if you simply try to analyze them, in, in many ways you'll, you'll kind of miss, miss the point because some of the things are just so complex and, and to use these words, delicate, and, uh, like a flower that, you know, in order to touch it, you, you, you have to touch it in a different way because um, if you just grab it, you'll destroy it. What was that like for you as a poet to put yourself out there, but also to revisit these really powerful, deeply personal stories that you had walked through, uh, shaped your life in different ways? Um, what was it like to kind of revisit those stories? Well, I, I, I was thrilled about being able to uh, put the poetry out there. The, the, the writing group that I was a part of, led by Ted Smith at Emory, um, uh, in which we read portions of the book, I told him, I said, uh, now I'm going to put my poetry in here, and uh, I need for you to be brutally honest with me because mm -hmm. often when theologians and ethicists write poetry, it's pretty bad. <laughs> so there's a reason they stuck with the analytic task, <laughs> right? So I said, so I said, please let me know. I, I do not want to put this out. And the highest compliment I got was by one of our colleagues who was in the group. She she had missed the meeting, and then she came to the next meeting, and she had read the first two chapters, and she. She said, you know, I kept looking in the back for what poetry you were quoting here, and then I realized this is you. 
this is pretty good. <laughs> and that's the, when a scholar looks in the back of the book for who what the poet is, you know you made it. But it also um, says the low bar for for theology and poetry. Right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, you know, um, as I said, as I say in, in the very beginning of the book, one of the things about scholars, Jonathan, and you know this very well, we we have wild memories. And so we remember things that other people long would have long forgotten. And uh, that's part of the strength of being a scholar. Your, your, your mind holds on to the obscure and the unimportant or the things others think is unimportant that you realize actually, no, this is very important. So what that means is that we're living with our memories in ways I think other people um, are not, don't appreciate like we do. Because So to be able to share these stories in a sense, to bring people into my in, into my present, constant remembering of the past, in order to calibrate what the present and the future should look like. So it was good because I was doing it, as I think most scholars who want to try to do this, I was doing it in service to the present and the future. Um, I realized, and and as I told a few people. Many of the stories are, all the stories are, are both true, true and made up, right? So, um, you know, I, I took pieces apart, but many of the stories are composite, which means that um, it, it happened multiple times with different people. And so I just wrote it all together in one. And um, the, the goal is to be in service to those who, I mean, people have already written me and emailed me and said, you know, yeah, this, this happened to me. <laughs> and, and, um, and I never thought, I never knew what, what to think about it until I read this, read what you said about it. And so the goal is to be in service to people who um, are engaged in that, that operation that, as I like to say, you should never do alone, self-interpretation. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciated the stories. I mean, it's, really one of the gifts of the book. Um, I mean, I think most people know you are an otherworldly mind thinker, otherworldly writer, uh, certainly uh, an extraordinary teacher, but you're also a brilliant administrator. And not many people who didn't live during that time with you um, know that about you. Um, uh, but it, it really gives that, but also a very particular version of that set of stories. So I, I really appreciated that. So let me dive in further with the book uh, and ask you a couple of specific questions um, and it, it ask you to say a little bit more about some of this. Uh, one of the things you write is theological education in the West uh, gloried in a refusal. And you talk about a refusal of, of Christians to think with the rest of the world, say the non-European world about the world, right? This refusal um, took as its task forming people who would embody this white aesthetic regime as fundamental to performing a gospel logic and a Christian identity. So talk to us, if you will, about the West's view of education, about how contemporary theological edu education continues in that, what you call its collisions and collaborations. Well, you know, it's, um, this is, this comes near the, the heart of the problem that, um, there's a trajectory that uh, Western education is yet inside. It's, and, and fundamentally, it's a theological trajectory. Um, George Marsden, a long time ago, when he wrote you know, his famous work on the soul of the university, uh, was, was scratching at this very thing. 
that there is a that there's a deep theological trajectory that um, that Western education lifted off on that that was the runway, and theological education always gives witness to that. The problem is is that um, that you know that trajectory found itself moving and burying itself deeply inside of the colonial matrix, the modern colonial matrix, and the modern colonial project of civilizing the world. And as I've said in other contexts, uh, what, what that colonial project did um, through Christianity is to uh, present a vision of maturity that would be the um, pedagogical framing of the work of shaping a Christian, forming a Christian, how to mature people and how to mature places, how to enter into a mature form of life. And um, as I said, whiteness formed, you know, at the site of this project of maturing people, of forming, forming people. And unfortunately for us, what that's meant is that Christianity took into itself a building project that from the very beginning um, forced us into sick choices, very sick choices, and, and claimed it for the sake of the gospel. Those sick choices um, can be boiled down to the narrowing of focus, as I say in the, the design chapter, the narrowing of attention, the narrowing of affection, and the narrowing of what we have to, we should resist and what we shouldn't resist. And it's that, it's that reduction that has been so damaging to so many people. So that the idea of the educated, the educated person has been um, so tightly tied to um, white masculine self-sufficiency that um, we've never been able to um, shake ourselves free of that. So uh, even, and of course the problem is, is that that, that formation into white masculine self-sufficiency is imagined not only as the site of maturity, but as the lifting off point into freedom. You can't be free until you enter that. Freedom is only available through that door. You can't be free of the door <laughs> because to be free of the door is death. And, and for so many, and so many colonial sites, that was literally, uh, you, die, you would be killed, you resist that. But to then um, baptize it as it was and as it continues to be, as the very source of human freedom, human consciousness, as it were, you come to consciousness. And in coming to consciousness, you come to freedom inside that form. This is, this is the problem. And of course, you know, Here's the thing about it, Jonathan. I mean, this is in this is in Christianity, but obviously it grew outside. It grew beyond Christianity, and so it's it's in both places. This is why, as I in the book, it really doesn't. You know, it, it, some of the old arguments between those who work outside of religious studies or work outside of theological studies who imagine themselves in a 
more enlightened free state as opposed to those inside religious studies or inside theological studies in a less free state. It, it, it's irrelevant for this problematic because both of them are inside the same narrowing, the same reduction of life and intellectual life. So one of the things that's really interesting about the book is a lot of these insights come from uh, your role as an academic dean of a major theological seminary, uh, one of the most influential at that point in its life. Um, so what was it like to kind of write with that perspective in mind, um, to revisit that season of your life, um, and then to think forward about what your hopes are for theological education going forward? You know, it was, uh, I understood well, in my years as an academic dean, how rare someone like me in that role was. Um, at the time, uh, there were no other African-Americans in uh, leadership, academic dean leadership at any other university-related divinity school at the time. And, and if you asked how many African-American academic deans there were, I think we could all fit into to a room, <laughs> a small bathroom, maybe five of us total. And so I realized at the time how, how rare it was. What I did not realize at the time is um, how, what a toll it would take on me physically, emotionally, and spiritually because of the, the kind of work. Um, you know, academic deans, uh, if they're doing their work, uh, with any kind of diligence, you know, you, you start, your body starts to meld into the daily operations of the school. And you start to feel what's going on at the school. When I was an academic dean, I could tell you at any point in the day what was going on in any part of the school. <laughs> I could tell you, I could tell you what was going on, what was, what was going well, what was going poorly, what I was worried about, what, what we were afraid might fall apart. Uh, and that had to do with teachers, administrators, and students. And so the, the, very, the very life of the school is breathing through you as you breathe. Which means that if something is, something is going awry, or something is going badly, I, I would feel it. I mean, I would literally be feeling it because it would, it would wind up back in my, in my office. And while others would go home and go to bed, I'm there trying to think through, well, what are we going to do about that? because the, this has to do with the daily operations of the school. So um, for me to revisit that, it was helpful because um, you know, it reminded me of what was important. But see, the other piece of this for, for me, Jonathan, is that after I left the deanship, even while I was in the deanship, I was doing consulting work all over the country for the ATS and for another institution called the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning now in the directorship of um, uh, Nancy Lynn Westfield, then under the leadership of uh, Dina Pence. Um, and as I was doing that work, you know, I was going to other schools and seeing similar struggles, similar challenges. And so this book revisits, you know, the work, you know, I continue to do in, in some ways, but it revisits all the, all the, um, work that I was doing, not only at my former institution, but at all these other schools, helping people think through a wide variety of matters. And so what it does for me is it, remi it reminds me of how much work uh, not only is being done in these schools by academic administrators, but how much work is yet to be done 
um, academic administrators are, you know, they are in many ways the, the crucial linchpin between um, um, the, the, the president or the dean and the faculty, between um, the, the programs and projects and curriculum of a school and its execution with and in the lives of students. And in that pivotal role, you realize how much, how much of your, your very life energy is being poured out to make that thing work. So it was, it was, um, it's powerful for me to do that. And my, my hope, as I said, is that with this book, my hope is now not only give people the insider view of all that, but actually open up some possibilities of, of a real freedom that I think so many scholars are in desperate need of. I mean, the, 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 if there's anything many of these stories point to, it points to roads not traveled, directions not taken, that had they been taken, uh, what turned out to be um, very painful and, uh, and um, very painful and imprisoning realities could have wound up being something very different for people. So my hope is that it will, it will open up some new possibilities for people to think through, you know, everything. And, and so everything from undergraduate education through what it means to be a tenured full professor, what it means to be an administrator, what it means to be a student, um, to rethink all of that in ways that will move us away from the power of living inside the aspirations of that uh, sick formation that's always in front of us. To dig deeper into some of that, um, to go further again into the book, I, I want to pull up a, a screenshot from an image that you uh, reflect quite powerfully on in the book. Um, the title of this image is Slaves at Worship on a Plantation in South Carolina. In the book, you talk about coming across this while giving a lecture at, at Wheaton College. Uh, you say in bolded print in the book, um, all theological education in the Western world is haunted by this illustration, a plantation at worship and an enslaved creature. Can you say more about this print um, and what it says about contemporary education? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I came across this. Um, uh, there, the um, archivist at uh, Wheaton, who was in charge of the Billy Graham Museum, happened upon this folder in the archives in which um, someone had sent, or, or maybe several people had sent prints to the archive that depicted the prints of black people by white um, artists, some not white artists, but mostly white artists. And in that collection was this, this um, particular picture. This comes from the, the London Times and someone had uh, sent this to them. And um, uh, they, they had sent the whole set to me because they wanted me to come and comment on, on this whole set. And they later published a very nice little book on it. But when I saw this, Jonathan, it, it hit me. I mean, it, it, it's like somebody punched me in the face and at the, in the gut at the same time. It's such a powerful image. And what the image points to are two abiding realities that have moved through theological education in the West from the very beginning. One, you have the master 
and his family sitting there at the very center. I mean, in many ways, the controlling center of um, this worship and um, what this preacher will be allowed to say. And so much of theological education yet revolving around that profound image of the white family. And um, in the book, I, I, I call this the racial paterfamilias, which in point of fact, it is, it is, it is the, the rule of the white father over the world and over this, this small world. And the, but the preacher standing in the pulpit must be seen in relationship to that racial paterfamilias, in relationship to that, that the, the white master, his son next to him, as it were, inside the pulpit, inside, you know, you could see him there inside. And then the, the, the mother and the daughter standing, in a sense, to the back or to the back side of this preacher. And um, the, the recognition that whatever he's preaching, it certainly isn't communicating um, the possibility of uh, slave escape to the Underground Railroad. It isn't, it isn't uh, speaking um, uh, a, sec a different word to them in code that they could hear. It clearly is aligned with what would be imagined as appropriate by this, this um, plantation family and by the um, racial paterfamilias figure there. And it's precisely that dynamic of a theological education still formed inside this trajectory of sustaining a kind of white normativity that um, positions a black preacher to speak, but speak in a way acceptable to the plantation logic that continues to haunt us. Um, and we know this by how, as we were talking when we first began, the, the many schools that are yet struggling with how to think about their curriculum, how to think about their teaching in ways that um, really do speak to um, the non-white presence in their schools. And so this, this, this image is so incredibly powerful. And um, in the illustration, you can't really see it well from this particular shot, but in the illustration, the illustrator captured the faces of these these slaves so profoundly, you can see not just um, melancholy, but a kind of deep uh, pain in them as they're sitting there with the master and his family listening to this sermon. This, this, this opens the chapter on institutional life. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I hope people will see when they come to this chapter is the way Western institutional life all Western institutions, like, but especially educational institutions, is haunted by the racial paterfamilias, is haunted by the pedagogy of the plantation, I called it. And so that the very formation uh, inside institutions to become institutional people, to, to, um, to in a sense yield our lives to the well-being of an institution, if that yielding has not been thought carefully about in relationship to this legacy, it will underwrite the racial paterfamilias. And in that regard, it will underwrite the formation 
of people toward becoming masters. What does that mean? It means that uh, people are formed to see others first as tools for use <laughs> before they see them as um, invitations to communion and to life together. They, will, they see people as simply tools. And so it's one of the dynamics that I talk about in the stories in that chapter. Oftentimes in so many, you know, as, as being in, as in an institution, you see the um, deployment of this, what I call this focused coldness, this reality of efficiency that institutions in, uh, force upon people that then becomes a part of the formation of a, of a self and formation of a, of a particular institutional personality. This is why for so many people, especially in the academy, even the Theological Academy, they keep the institution at arm's length because um, they understand that there is the quote unquote business side of the institution that would simply run over them if they let it. And so um, they, their allegiance, their alliance to the institution is kept at arm's length. They're not gonna let this place get too close to them. And in point of fact, the, the tragedy of that is that that also creates a particular kind of formation that, that is the, the flip side of someone who fully enters into the desire to become a master. It's someone who is trying to, someone who's living a kind of sad fugitivity, even while they are in the institution. So in a sense, the image is one of the past, but it's an image of the present of education. Yes, yes. very much so. You know, the, um, there's, a, there's a part of that picture, in the, and I isolated it. It's the part where you can see two older uh, African-Americans, or you could still call them uh, uh, African slaves because they, they're not considered Americans at that point, but two African slaves are sitting there and the father is on one, in a sense, in the, in the picture, the father's here and the son is here and they are caught in the middle. <laughs> and it's that, it's that reality that so many people of color in the academy uh, know, and I tried to, I tried to name this because this is almost, this is never named. In fact, there's, I don't know any book that's ever named it. It's the reality of how some people come to an institution, step into this trajectory of the racial paterfamilias and quickly move up the ladder of an institution, learning how to ignore and or exploit people of color in order to get themselves to the position of leadership. And for so many people of color, especially so many African-Americans who see that and you know, carry, a, carry a deep melancholy, because okay, here comes another one. She comes in, she's don't listen to us, but in a few, in another year, she's gonna be our boss or she's gonna be the dean or whatever. And um, the, the horror of that, <laughs> the horror of that. And of course, that reality can run parallel to somebody's um, intellectual project that might be emancipatory, might be progressive, might be, you know, um, you know, uh, inter, you know, it might be in all the wonderful things about their, their academic project, but the way they function in the institution, they're like, they're like slave, slave masters in training. And that's an unfortunate reality that continues to inhabit so many institutions of higher learning. But also, and as I said in the, this chapter, outside of, outside of um, 
academic institutions. It happens in the church. It happens in other contexts as well. Continuing this line of thought, but also pointing us to uh, hope and other possibilities. You write, theological education is about resistance. It is the seed from which may grow beautiful habituation or from which may be grown mind-bending captivity. How do you design for intellectual resistance? This may be the most pressing question in theological education today because we theological educators are failing miserably at precisely at this, at imagining a form of resistance that builds community. Can you say more about this, about the theological education being about resistance, how it can yes. go beautifully and lead us, uh, or lead us further to captivity about how educators are or are not taking this question seriously, yeah, and the benefits is, and consequences of that? Absolutely. You know, and the stories I tell here, I hope people will be able to uh, think about those stories. But this is, this is one of the crucial problems we're facing right now, that um, we don't know and by we, I mean, we, we theological educators, but I would say the Western Academy as a whole, this is a huge problem. We don't know how to um, engage students and engage communities in shared projects of resistance. I mean, this is, this is the other, in a sense, this is the inside of thinking uh, intersectionality, right? Uh, to think intersectionality is crucial, but one of the problems is that we haven't opened that up to say, okay, how do we work ourselves down into thinking out loud together, not simply in what we ought to resist, but how do we construct a shared project of resistance that builds us toward each other while we're constructing it, right? Um, so in, the, so in the examples I gave, you know, you, you have students who are deeply, so at this moment, you have students who are deeply concerned about um, anti-racist training, which is exactly right. And you have other students who are saying, well, what about us? <laughs> Those, you know, what about this group? And again, exactly right. And the problem is, is for so many institutions, they're trying to, they're thinking about how to manage it. They're approaching this with kind of managerial logic. How do we, how do we manage these competing claims, these compete? <laughs> and the problem is, is that that way of approaching what is in front of us already misses not only the opportunity, but pedagogically misses the, the crucial invitation that we who teach should be hearing, and that is how do we open up the, the patterns of resistance, the projects of resistance, to uh, analyze what precisely must we resist as a part of our formation? Because th this is different. I mean, this is really important to capture, Jonathan. There's a difference between engaging students in activist activities and engaging students on the kind of formation necessary to sustain a life that resists the kinds, not only the kinds of evil one imagines, but the, the kind of a melancholy and depression and struggle um, and you know, the, the, um, the, the um, effects of struggling against those very things. And how does one do that without 
underwriting even more deeply an incipient individualism. You know, okay, it's about me figuring out how to sustain myself as I'm fighting again. Well, no, what it really is about is how do we help cultivate the desire to turn outward, draw others into a shared project of a flourishing life while we together resist A, B, C, and D. And unfortunately, the reason we struggle so we struggle so much with this and fail so miserably at this is that faculty, those of us who do this work, um, we haven't figured out how to to engage this question with each other. And because we haven't figured out how to engage this question with each other, haven't figured out how to uh, engage this question inside of a shared project of intellectual work, it means we can't lead the students. And so like in the example I gave, you have, you have two students who are brilliant leaders who are committed to um, uh, the, the work of justice in their particular interests who can't talk to each other. And they represent faculty who've trained them, who has, who have, who's trained them not to know how they talk to each other. Um, and as I said, intersectionality is a, is a good way to start to think about this, but Intersectionality has to go a long way to get at what I'm talking about here, because this is not just a matter of how you manage multiple um, realities of struggle and resistance. It's how you create something uh, inside the work of forming people to resist. Yeah, when I was reading that section, it, it struck me how often you don't have these three people ever in the same room or even imagining being in the same room with each other. One, people who are committed to activist lives, um, uh, and specifically anti-racism, environmental, these kinds of, uh, kinds of passions and concerns. Second, those who think about formational questions and especially formational questions with all their vexed possibilities that you really outline in the book. And administrators, these three people are never in the same room uh, and that is a sad statement about kind of where we're headed then as, a, as an institution. And this is why I think for so many schools, um, I, I mentioned this in a, a recent thing I did with um, a recent piece I did in Christian Century. You know, we increasingly have students who are coming to us in, inside the um, ironic and paradoxical situation of wanting to be formed, wanting to be shaped, but at the same time, suspicious of any efforts <laughs> that would form them and shape them. <laughs> and I understand, and, and as, as somebody who came into, the, came into the academy that way, I understand that. But it takes, it takes um, a subtlety to see what's in front of you, to recognize that you have students who both want and resist at the same time. And how do you, um, align the wanting and the resisting in a way that allows them to trust a process that you yourself are inside of with them, right? That's the challenge, that's the challenge. <laughs> but of course, many faculty, you know, we have, we, as I said, we haven't done the work we need to do to think about that. Um, and my hope is that um, the, the work in intersectionality that more people are doing might lift off into this deeper work that has to be done. Uh, any examples of beautiful habituation that you'd want to highlight 
you, you know, you have a broad reach across the country uh, in terms of what folks are doing. Any things that you think of that really give you hope? Well, you know, I, I, I wouldn't name any specific schools, but, I, but what I would say is that I know of, of a number of places that are, that are doing good things and they, and they, have, they have the following characteristics. So um, there are many places where now, as you just mentioned a moment ago, they're putting in the room the um, administrators, especially ones tied to student life, with students, with faculty, the ones, you know, the faculty have always been, as they say, on the front lines of thinking about these matters, with other faculty who um, throughout their careers, whether they're at the start of their career, in the middle of their career, or the end of the career, have kind of avoided these matters. And so now for the first time, I know at several schools, a couple of things are happening. That group of faculty who avoided all this are finally in the room. And in terms of the students, the students are finally being listened to carefully. And uh, people are asking the questions, uh, how might we reshape what we do at this institution to address the kind of challenges that these students are facing here, but will be facing when they graduate, which is, that's encouraging to see. What, what's, what's encouraging to see is the, is the collaboration that's developing. And um, I, I do have hope that um, on the other side of this pandemic, some, some really important things will happen. Um, you know, it, the, the, this pandemic has in so many ways thrown all of us back to some kind of fundamental moments of uh, thinking what we're, what we're doing. And back to really trying to understand, okay, now what am I doing as a teacher here? Because you know, everything I have, I have put on automatic for years is now, is, that's gone and I'm doing manual work. <laughs> I have no automatic to turn on. I have to, I, okay, let me think through all of this, which is good. I think that's very good for faculty and I think it's very good for students. I, I you know, I'm, I'm teaching this semester and I find myself um, attending to the, um, you know, the kind of particular needs of my students much more carefully because of the stress I know they're under. And, you know, even though um, I'm staring at a screen, you know, I'm looking at their faces much more clear, much more carefully and intently now to see, okay, how much energy this student has? What, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And I think all of that's to the good. And I think for many schools, it means that now um, there can actually be a compass set by the students in terms of what we do. I, might, I wonder if we might end where you conclude the book by talking about revolution and communion. You say the idea of revolution confronts theological education, theological educational institutions with a question. Why do you exist? This is our question because we exist inside a revolution, the overturning that is the turning the world right side up by God. Can you talk about uh, talk to us about education as revolution and participating in revolution, and indeed, as you yeah. talk about education within the book in terms of gathering and communion. Yeah, yeah. The um, this is a crucial matter. You know, those of us in theological education, we are we are inside the overturning that God has brought about through through Jesus, and um, we we often lose sight of that, and because for so many of us. Uh, we ha we have made the mistake of 
of seeing the revolutionary reality and the revolutionary trajectory that should be inside of our educational work, stopping only at critique. <laughs> so uh, for some faculty, just in introducing students to critical thinking, basically that's what the revolution means. Well, no, <laughs> it's, it moves beyond critical thinking. Okay, then we, we're all great for the critical, but it moves beyond critical thinking. And then it moves beyond critique because the revolution, the revolution is the revolution of critique as well. And so the, the, the revolution is the, not only the overturning of um, the, the powers and the configuration of life inside the powers, but it's the overturning of the boundaries and the borders that separate us that opens up a new possibility of, of communion and life together. This is the revolution that we're inside of, a revolution that draws us together uh, across the, all the realities and structures of trespass. So, um, you know, what, I, what I'm, by, by talking about this, what I hope is to situate the work that so many schools, especially the schools that see themselves inside um, uh, overturning either a world that um, is anti-God or a world that um, in terms of a political and social vision resists uh, the emancipatory politics that would make for a thriving life for so many. My goal is to um, capture both, both, um, both kinds of folks who think that and think there's school inside those stories into a, into a wider reality of revolution. The revolution is greater than simply overturning, you know, conservative politics, conservative societies. The revolution is greater than overturning um, liberal anti-God societies, whatever, the, whatever those are. Um, and the revolution draws us to a life together that, that um, requires at the end of the day end of the day that we um, we really announce something fundamentally different so that that which exists we always get witness it's crumbling from the inside Jonathan that's the key here that that um, just as Jesus brought a brought a crumbling, from the inside, you, you can't see it from the outside, but on the inside, it's crumbling away. Um, we, we as well represent that crumble, even in the academy, that the very structures that we imagine we're building that will, that will aim toward eternity, we're crumbling them, even as we're standing in them. Uh, and the crumbling isn't just to see rubble all around us, it's um, to see anew that God is already bringing about. What good news that uh, the crumbling is happening, that God is doing this, and that God would include the academy uh, in this work. So um, thank you for the gift of your time, the, the gift of this uh, wonderful new book, and the gift of your enormous influence in contemporary theology. It is, um, it is life-changing for all of us. So thank you, Professor thank Dennis. You. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, man.
Thank that's you, what you. your work. 